0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to you all, uh, friends, lovers of peace, activists for peace, fellow citizens of the world, whatever your nationality or duality, Um, An acknowledgement of country is uh, appropriate to begin. This is the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay respects to their elders past and present. And also, I think, important, given that we're on a university campus, to uh, recognise the legacy of Indigenous learning. Uh, Important, yes, in a modern university that draws from uh, distinctive and diverse currents of knowledge and learning uh, to promote critical open-ended inquiry and uh, none more so than in the School of Social and Political Sciences here at the University of Sydney and, dare I say it, my own department in particular, the Department of Political Economy. Uh, My name is Frank Stilwell, I'm a professor emeritus in that department and I welcome you on behalf of the organisations sponsoring this event. First uh, and foremost, most obviously, Sydney Ideas and Meredith Hall who's been instrumental in uh, publicising and making the arrangements for this event. But the other four organisations involved are the School of Social and uh, Political Sciences that I've just mentioned, which also includes, of course, here at the University of Sydney, uh, the Department of uh, Peace and Conflict Studies, uh, which was formed here at the university, is it more than 20 years ago? Almost 30 30 years ago. By by Stuart Rees, who's with us here in the audience tonight. Uh, The four sponsoring organisations are the Council for Peace with Justice, that has taken over from the Centre for... Peace and conflict studies, as the, uh, the, the like the community arm o- o- of of uh, peace and conflict studies at this university, trying to build bridges between research and teaching about peace studies at the university and broader uh, public information, public campaigns around issues to do with peace. Uh, the Everett Foundation, which I, I'm, I'm the vice president. Uh, which has a long track record of trying to carry out the, the legacy of Doc Evatt, who, among other things, was the uh, president of the General Assembly of the United Nations when it drew up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and is therefore arguably Australia's greatest ever, or most important, I- international statesman. The Evatt Foundation carries on in that tradition, emphasising human rights, social justice and uh, related economic and political concerns. Uh, But um, perhaps uh, I'm getting to to the punchline here when I say that the next sponsoring organisation uh, involved in this event is ICANN. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, an organisation begun, I think, about 13 years ago... Formally
1: launched 10 years ago. Formally
0: launched 10 years ago. And of course, culminating this year, this Australian born organisation developing its international reach and this year being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) I thought about bringing along a bottle of champagne to get this uh, un- underway because I mean it, it is something absolutely wonderful to celebrate but in in the same breath of course we have to take stock of the enormous challenges that face us notwithstanding the significant advance in getting the UN treaty on prohibition of nuclear weapons uh, established this year uh, We live in a world which the the threat of nuclear disaster is is as pronounced as ever. So our focus tonight is not not, not primarily a celebration. It's a stock taking an analysis, a consideration of the challenges we face and what can be done. So uh, the arrangements are that each of the speakers, which is Tim Ayers from the AMWU, Tara Gutman from Red Cross, and Tim Wright from ICANN are going to speak briefly, a little more than five minutes, perhaps five to ten, max, so that by about half past uh, six we can move into a more of a <coughs> conversation between them ab- about the, these challenges. Uh, then uh, at around seven o'clock, uh, I'll open it up for general uh, comment and questions from the floor, and we'll aim to finish by around seven thirty. And I'll ask the, the speakers at the end of that time if they could just uh, give us a couple of pointers about how to get involved in, in ongoing campaigning and political activities ar- around what we've been discussing. Is that okay with you? An agreed plan, a program? That's good. So without further ado, let me begin by introducing the first of uh, our three speakers, Tim Ayers, who's uh, the uh, national secretary of the. Uh, don't, don't
2: secretary tell I'll <coughs> in. No, no, no. I've. <laughs> I. What, what am I now? I don't tell a national secretary that you've said that. I'm the. Uh, national coordinator of research. So I'm supposed to
0: be the sort of thoughtful. The The, the thoughtful yep. one in the union movement. <laughs> Deep this trouble, is good, isn't this I mean? good to know. Uh, uh, Tim's from the uh, AMWU. He's also on the national executive of the. Um, the ALP, yeah. and uh, he tells me that he's a candidate for pre selection for the next Senate uh, opposition on the, the tenants. Yeah, w- with Doug Cameron's retirement, there will be a vacancy. <laughs> Who knows how many other vacancies are coming down the track. Anyway, Tim's in the game, straddling between the union movement and the, uh, and the major political party of the left. So without further ado, let me introduce Tim Ayers. Terrific. Thanks, Frank. I love it that uh, Frank
2: asked you if the program was all okay as if there was any sort of real democratic <laughs> process that was going to be engaged in uh, we, we're, we're sitting down and speaking are we I'm, I'm yeah, always uh, yeah, let's do it. I'll, I'll have to try and sort of, I'll, I'll try and contain myself if that's alright I want to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of uh, the land as well and it's important given this subject area um, uh, to do that um, it's our first peoples who've often, too often, borne the brunt in not just in Australia but in our region of uh, French nuclear testing uh, in the Pacific and uh, and in particular, what happened at uh, what happened uh, at Maralinga. Um, I um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak, um, not least because um, there's an opportunity to be on the same platform really, in the year that I can um, has been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, but also. You know, the act of writing down a few notes forces you to have a bit of a fresh think um, about what's going on um, in this particular area, really important area of uh, peace movement activity. Um, The threat of nuclear conflict for me as a kid growing up was one of the sort of key formative things that shaped um, my sort of adolescent emerging political consciousness Um, in a way that I don't think it does do that for the generations of young people coming through today. Um, I clearly remember, for a school project as a 13-year-old, it was a happy topic, uh, nuclear disarmament, Um, reading one of uh, Dr Caldicott's books and working through the detail of that. I vividly remember one of the course materials was was a map of the Sydney metropolitan area which sort of explained to you what would happen if a bomb exploded at the Garden Garden Island Naval Dockyard and sort of modelled what would happen uh, to Sydney. It really shaped our politics, it shaped our popular culture, it shaped our music uh, and it really shaped, I think, the way that a whole generation of people growing up in the 70s and 80s um, thought about politics. Um, And it was a cornerstone issue for the union movement and um, the labour movement. Um, And we were right to be active and militant and engaged um, about those issues, um, as um, Gareth Evans uh, said, who I understand had mixed support in this room, the we we got through uh, without the Cold War, without nuclear conflict, just by sheer dumb luck. Um, the Australian government itself, um, complicit as it was in the development of other nations' nuclear capabilities, was only years away from the commencement of its own nuclear program. Um, even News Limited reported earlier this year um, in in 1971 it was only because John Gorton everybody remember Gorton? Some of you will. Um, Was deposed in 1971 and the Whitlam government won the election in 1972 and signed the NPT in 1974 I think that really irrevocably put Australian nuclear ambitions to bed. Um, Now Arguably, today, we live in a more, not less, dangerous world. We're we're in a carbon-constrained world where, on one hand, you've got the threat of long-term damage from dangerous global warming, and, on the other hand, nuclear conflict that would have terrible and far-reaching consequences for life on this planet. Um, Both of these challenges are profoundly different Um, But they both require greatness, um, maturity and wisdom from our domestic and international political institutions that doesn't appear to be immediately apparent or automatic, if I can put it that way. Um, Over the last decade, the mindset uh, of the international disarmament community has moved from optimism to hope and then from pessimism to despair, a sort of morbid despair, about the position that we're in. Um, I do support wholeheartedly the ICANN campaign um, to sign for countries to sign, in particular Australia, the Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty. I, I do want to make that um, Thanks, Frank, for letting on that um, I'm sort of moving out uh, from one career into another. But I do want to make that a, um, a, a core issue for um, the progressive part of the Labor movement over the course of this year. And I do think ICANN would be welcome. Um, can't speak for Sally McManus and Jed Carney in the leadership of the ACTU, but surely we can find <coughs> a place uh, for ICANN at the ACTU Congress um, uh, next year. Um, it is, uh, you know, I think just extraordinary that an es- essentially Australian organisation that has led so much of the impetus towards the development of this treaty um, that wins the Nobel Peace Prize is just put in the freezer in Australia. It's a remarkable, contemptible thing, really. Um, I'm certain that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee knew what they were doing. Um, they recognised that it was vital that we put the nuclear disarmament issue firmly back on the political agenda. Uh, And what Turnbull and co have done is, um, you know, try and uh, push that to one side. Um, uh, The, um, you know, I I, I do understand, I've, I've read carefully, understand the argument that the treaty itself has got some limitations um, but I think you can sort of sweep aside those objections largely because what I think the proponents of the treaty are, are searching for is the normative impact of the treaty mm-hmm. upon um, upon uh, countries and actors and peoples around the world signing it would have an enormous impact and I just want to make a couple of couple of quick arguments Frank about where I think uh, it, we should we should be taking this. Um, firstly, I think that Australia and Australian progressives should rethink the value of Australia's contribution to the international campaign for disarmament. Traditionally, um, Australian effectiveness and activism has been constrained by our sense of our relationship with the United States and has been seen to be a conflict, in conflict with that, with that relationship, both as the guarantor in sort of brutal... Um, you know, regional political terms of our regional security um, and also because the ANZUS alliance plays such a key role in um, the American signals intelligence and, and, um, you know, all of that ballistic missile early warning information infrastructure. That's true. Uh, But but I think, and it's also been constrained by a sense of our place in the world and our place in the region. What I'd argue is it's We should turn that logic on its head, really. Those are reasons for us to be more active, not less active. Those are reasons why we have got a greater responsibility uh, to be active. And they're also reasons why, if Australia regains the approach that it traditionally took, particularly in the 80s and 90s on the world stage on these issues, I would argue that Australia's got a capacity to have more leverage, not less leverage, in the international discussion and the discussion in our region. Um, And that makes fighting for a durable national consensus, not necessarily a bipartisan consensus, I wouldn't waste your breath, but a national consensus on these issues absolutely something worth fighting for. The final point I want to make is You know, it'd be the silliest of all things, really, to spend the night arguing about what the right framework was or, you know, all the sort of um, policy wonkery um, about these issues. The cold, hard truth of the matter is that the prospects of nuclear disarmament have deteriorated right at the same time that the world has become a more dangerous place. Um, I'm not an alarmist about this. Like, I think alarmism is... Um, an important mobilising issue but you shouldn't lose a sense of yourself it, you know, surely the chances of any nation launching a nuclear assault are still limited um, because of the moral repugnance of that sort of decision and the suicidal uh, uh, impact of that decision but it is more likely than it has ever been in my view um, and that means we have to build a credible, capable people's movement with the capacity to put this issue at the centre of the political agenda. The people on my side of of, of politics, on the Labour movement side of politics, have traditionally played a very big role. People like Tom Muren, um, Bruce Childs, um, Evert himself, um, Meredith Bergman, um, Alba is one of the sponsors of the... Um, of uh, you know um, Jim Cairns have all been key leaders, and and unions, particularly on the progressive side of the union movement, have played a really um, important role. Um, all sorts of uh, labour politicians, Bob Tickner, for example, you know, played a key role um, in the peace movement. Um, unions like my own have played a role, and the peace movement has never been about just the labour movement. It's been about a much bigger thing: doctors writers, journalists, ordinary citizens groups getting together. But the truth is the peace movement has shrunk. It's older, smaller, it's less intellectually and politically engaged than it has ever been, right when we needed to be young and big and effective uh, and in the centre of the national political debate about a credible and real way forward. Uh, Not just for Australia or within Australia, but shaping Australia's engagement in all the institutional fora that matter. Um, so that's the challenge, I believe, is how do we build, rebuild that urgency and scale and size and sense of excitement and mobilisation around these issues. Um, so the award of the Nobel Peace Prize comes at a critical time it should be a clarion call for all of those of us who are deeply concerned about these issues, to think really hard about what our own contribution to this movement should be, uh, and to think about how we can make it broad and big and effective and intellectually robust and and able to uh, able to win over the course of the next couple of decades. I hope that was seven minutes, Frank. Good. Um, thank,
0: thank you very much, Tim. I was i to give you a four-minute warning, but uh, some people get the joke. very <laughs> kind. Um, not a funny joke. You, me- you mentioned uh, Bruce Childs, the yeah. former president of the um, Everett Foundation, who was for many years the uh, coordinator of the peace movement yep. here in, in, in uh, New South Wales. Uh, he gave his apologies. He wanted to be here tonight, but he's got a bit of a clash. I think meeting with Elbow and Kevin Rudd. Uh, that's a reasonable excuse, I guess, for old Bruce. Um, our next speaker is Tara Gutman. Uh, Tara is acting, General, uh, acting national manager of international humanitarian law, humanitarian law and advocacy at the Australian Red Cross. I believe she also works with the Department of Defence, the Attorney-General's Department, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to support the implementation of international humanitarian law. So for a humanitarian perspective, w- you, what Frank. could we do better than to hear from Tara Gutman? Please <laughs> join me in welcoming.
3: Thank you, Frank, and to the organisers of the event. I'm very honoured to be here. Um, I also would like to acknowledge that we meet on Eora Country, the home of the Gadigal Nation, This land has been cared for by their ancestors for 30,000 generations. Australian Red Cross um, pays tribute to the survival of the Gadigal people and honours the contribution of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to the cultural wealth of our nation. I would also like to uh, acknowledge, in her absence, the late Junko Morimoto, who is a Sydney prominent activist in this field and did a lot of very terrific work with Australian Red Cross, and she's no longer with us, unfortunately, Junko passed away just days before the treaty came to fruition. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge my former lecturer, who won't remember me, <laughs> Stuart Rees. I uh, had a flashback when I saw you to um, being lectured on the same quadrangle 25 years ago, and um, I have good memories of that time. Thank you for being here too. Um, so my role, as Frank mentioned, with Australian Red Cross, is that I manage the International Humanitarian Law Programme. And I want to tell you a bit about that program and what we do and why Red Cross is involved and our relationship with this particular campaign with um, the abolition of nuclear weapons. So Australian Red Cross and indeed the worldwide Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, which is made up of 190 Red Crosses like Australian Red Cross worldwide, um, plays an active role in promoting international humanitarian law. So we champion the ideas that civilians should be spared during conflict that the Red Cross and Red Crescent emblems should be protected and medical and humanitarian aid provided safely during wartime. That war criminals should be prosecuted and that there are methods and means of warfare, including specific weapons, such as nuclear weapons, that are illegal or should be illegal under international law. So it will come as no surprise to you that the Red Cross Red Crescent movement calls on all states to join this new treaty. Since their first use, Red Cross has been raising its voice against nuclear weapons. As you know, on 6 August, 1945, a white flash appeared over Hiroshima. Seconds later, that city was flattened. And in the midst of this appalling devastation, one hospital survived miraculously and could be seen. It was the Hiroshima Red Cross Hospital. And over the next few days, that hospital struggled to treat the many thousands who sought assistance. And on top of this, the first non-military and non-Japanese doctor to assist was Dr. Marcel Junot, a health delegate for the International Committee of the Red Cross, who received the assignment to quickly attend in Hiroshima and he's described his sights, what, what he's described what he saw, and I'd just like to quote one paragraph, if you'll allow me, from his, his diary of, of that day. It was a sight unlike, totally unlike anything I had ever seen before. The centre of the city was sort of a white patch, flattened and smooth, like the palm of a hand. Nothing remained. The slightest trace of houses seemed to have disappeared. The white patch was about two kilometres in diameter. Around its edge was a red belt marking the area where houses had burned, extending quite a long way further, covering almost the rest of the city. And if you visit Hiroshima today, you'll see a tribute to Dr. Junot and the ICRC in the Peace Park. And today, the Japanese Red Cross still runs the hospitals that tend to the ongoing medical needs of the hibakusha, the survivors, and indeed, their descendants who also suffer consequences. Um, and Red Cross still runs those hospi- runs uh, specific hospitals in Hiroshima and Nagasaki for the treatment of the hibakusha. For the Red Cross Red Crescent movement, the experience of Hiroshima and Nagasaki revealed that nuclear weapons should be unambiguously and conclusively recognized as violating the general principles of international humanitarian law. For which we are the custo- custodians under the Geneva Conventions, as well as the principle of humanity which guides our work. So, we've long held that it's difficult, that we find it difficult to envisage how any use of nuclear weapons could possibly be compatible with the principles of IHL. Let me tell you a little bit about IHL, also known as the laws of war, or when I deal with my military counterparts, the laws of armed conflict, they call it LOAC. Uh, We call it international humanitarian law. You can see the bias in in the difference. Um, So, however, neither the Geneva Conventions nor their 1977 Additional Protocols, which are the cornerstone foundational legal um, blocks of, of IHL, mention weapons of any kind. Rather, they provide principles to guide determinations of what might be legal and what might be illegal. So these general and fundamental principles of international humanitarian law govern the use of all weapons during times of conflict, including nuclear weapons. So I'd like to summarize those five principles for you so you can get the gist and understand the legality or not of these weapons. The rules are essentially, and I'm not gonna go into the exceptions, I'll just outline very broadly. The rules prohibit attacks on civilians and civilian objects. Civilian objects means things, places like hospitals and schools, cultural property, churches, mosques. They mandate that damage caused must be proportionate to the military objective. It is, of course, legal to target military objectives in wartime. It's legal to kill combatants, people who with whom you're fighting. But everyone, everything else is off limits. It prohibits attacks that cannot distinguish between military and civilian people or objects it prohibits weapons that cause unnecessary or superfluous injury and with respect to the natural environment it prohibits damage to the environment which is widespread long-term and severe this protection includes a prohibition of weapons that are intended to or may be expected to cause such damage to the natural environment and thereby prejudice the health or survival of the population into the future so i would contend that after hearing about the absolute devastation nuclear weapons cause, it would be very difficult for anyone to argue that those effects are compatible with the rules that I've just outlined. So the Red Cross Red Crescent movement sees the unacceptable humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons within the context of our inability to adequately mount an emergency humanitarian response should those weapons be used. So as I mentioned earlier, our commitment to banning nuclear weapons is also found in our experience in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But also our contemporary global expertise in humanitarian and emergency response. So even large expert organizations such as mine and actors such as the United Nations, for all their vast resources and decades if not centuries of experience, have seen that humanitarian responders can be overwhelmed after even a small natural disaster. Caring for survivors is always difficult in natural disasters. The effects, for example, of flooding, fires, cyclones, earthquakes, provide enough uh, enough challenges with respect to restoration of livelihoods. Think, for example, of the 2004 tsunami, which killed over 230,000 people and pushed the world's humanitarian responders to their capacity as have the refugee crises that we're now in the midst of and the conflicts, particularly those we see regularly, nightly in Syria and Yemen. But in the case of a nuclear war and not even being able to access those affected, it's clear that for the global movement, a humanitarian response would be impossible. The humanitarian consequences of a blast The heat, the electromagnetic pulse, the radiation associated with the nuclear explosions. Remember, it's several million degrees Celsius at the moment of the explosion. Everything is obliterated. Everything is gone. You can't rush in there. Um, The the radiation, as I said, associated with nuclear explosions would be insurmountable for medical and humanitarian responders and are not reasonably comparable to experiences with natural disasters which we've learned from in the past. And one must remember that the yield of modern nuclear weapons are thousands of times more potent than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those bombs really are very little by comparison. The total destruction of not just the impact site, but extensive areas surrounding surrounding the impact site are foregone conclusions with modern nuclear weapons, making the ability of those left to respond almost non-existent. So I won't talk here, but if anyone's interested in the immediate short-term, long-term effects of nuclear weapons, I'm happy to discuss that later, or nuclear winter issues and the environmental uh, consequences of a a nuclear winter and the sun being covered effectively for potentially decades. But from the Red Cross point of view, as experienced first responders to emergencies and catastrophes, the, the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement worldwide has been calling on all states to sign the treaty And I encourage you to encourage others to learn more about this to get the word out too. Two weeks ago, the Red Cross Red Crescent movement held its biennial statutory meetings in Antalya, Turkey, (coughs) where 107 states' national um, Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, including Australia's, um, met and and passed a resolution calling on states to promptly sign and faithfully implement this treaty and also calls on states that have not yet joined the non-proliferation treaty the comprehensive test ban treaty and regional um, nuclear free zone um, arrangements to ensure that these weapons are never used again and for nuclear weapons possessors to take steps immediately to reduce intentional or accidental use and at that uh... meeting uh, A very young delegate got up, an Australian delegate, and held the floor and had a standing ovation. And I I, I really liked her last line, which was... uh, I'll close with the same line. The the principles of international humanitarian law and of the Red Cross Red Crescent movement do not permit moral indifference in the face of of the terrifying effects of a weapon for which there is no adequate humanitarian response.
0: Thank you very much, Tara. Our third speaker is Tim Wright, who's uh, Asia-Pacific Director of ICAN. He's a member of the international staff team and has been involved in ICAN's campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons since 2006 and uh, has degrees in law and arts from the University of Melbourne, which I hear is quite a good place to study.
1: (laughs) Tim. Thanks very much, Frank, um, and thank you to our hosts and to all of you for being here. Um, I thought I'd just talk a little bit about the story of, of ICANN, how we set it up and how we work to uh, achieve the treaty in partnership with the Red Cross and like-minded governments. Um, it's been a 10-year struggle to get to that point, but of course builds on uh, more than six decades of activism before it. Uh, because really ever since the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people have been speaking out against these weapons and have been calling for a ban. Uh, And it was really moving on the final day of negotiations when Setsuko Thurlow, who's a survivor of Hiroshima, said, we've been waiting for this day for 72 years and I'm so overjoyed that it's finally arrived. Um, Of course, there's so much work still to be done Uh, but she said that that moment in her mind marked the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons and our challenge is to make sure that this treaty uh, is exactly that. So we started the campaign in Melbourne a little over a decade ago and I was studying law at the time and there was a group of doctors with the Medical Association for Prevention of War Uh, who approached me and said, would you help us set up this campaign? And I was so excited about this prospect of being part of a group of people who would set out to kind of reshape international law on an issue which is so vital to the future of humanity. And I couldn't believe that there were treaties prohibiting chemical weapons and biological weapons and anti-personnel landmines and a treaty being negotiated at that time to prohibit cluster munitions, but no treaty uh, that comprehensively outlawed the very worst weapons of all. Uh, And so we set out to build a global coalition uh, and we were very much inspired by the success of the international campaign to ban landmines. This was uh, a movement that was really active uh, in the 1990s. It's still active today, uh, but it was in the 1990s that they managed to bring about the uh, Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Treaty, Uh, and they did that by uh, building a global grassroots movement of non-governmental organisations. And so we went to groups, we travelled the world, and we said, you know, be part of this campaign, help us to achieve uh, a treaty that these weapons for all time and uh, I think that that message resonated and we didn't over complicate things we focused on uh, what matters most which is what these weapons do to people and the environment when used uh, so we avoided the kind of complicated geopolitical um, discussions which had really got nowhere um, with nuclear disarmament and just um, looked at the health consequences. we talked about the nuclear famine that would result uh, from you know, multiple nuclear detonations, and showed that this is a global threat this isn 't just a problem that those in nuclear armed nations should be addressing, uh, but this is a this is an issue for everyone. Um, one of the first things that I did was um, travelled to 14 African countries and I'd been planning this trip anyway uh, because I wanted a semester off uni and um, and I was so uh, excited to be part of the campaign and there in the office with uh, Felicity Ruby as she was she was the director at the time, setting up the campaign, producing the materials, developing the first website and she said you know, don't just go on a holiday uh, you know, talk about the campaign and you know we need the support of these countries and uh, and so I met with a whole lot of NGOs there who had been working on the small arms issues facing those uh, countries and I met with government officials uh, and they said yes this is an issue this is an issue that we should be um, working on and you know basically saw it as an opportunity to tell the other countries in the world that they're doing the wrong thing because I think that a lot of these countries are often pressured on other issues and told to lift their game and so this was a, an opportunity for them to tell other countries to lift their game. Um, and so that uh, uh, that was a really exciting um, process to be part of and then we had the international launch in Vienna um, a couple of months later and um, that was the first time I saw kind of how international diplomacy works or how it doesn't work Um, is probably more accurate because um, very little was happening Um, it was in the sidelines of a non-proliferation treaty preparatory committee meeting uh, that we launched the campaign Um, and diplomats just talked for weeks and and didn't really make any progress and And I didn't quite realise at the time just how stagnated the discussions were until I went to meeting after meeting and realised that they were the same debates being uh, rehashed time and again. Um, And so we tried to inject new uh, energy um, and we managed to build partnerships with the Norwegian government and the Mexican government and the uh, Austrian government and host or co-host international conferences on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. And the first of those was in Oslo in 2013. And it was the first time ever in the history of the nuclear age that governments had actually come together and seriously discussed what nuclear weapons do. Uh, I mean, that's extraordinary that it took more than 60 years to get to that point. because uh, the debates in the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva and uh, in New York and, and other kind of uh, diplomatic centres had just been so dominated by the nuclear-armed nations and they had set the terms of the debate. And they did not want to talk about the harsh reality of what these weapons are. And so it was so crucial to have um, people from the Red Cross present at that meeting, uh, people from various um, UN agencies that are actually dealing with issues like migration and, um, and you know, development. And they spoke about what would happen if nuclear weapons were used, if even a single nuclear weapon were used today. How would that affect their work? And it was frightening. Um, and they all said that there is absolutely nothing we could do to respond meaningfully in the aftermath of a nuclear attack and so it was a wake up call Uh, and uh, by the end of those three conferences it was very clear that we needed a prohibition treaty Um, there was a declaration a pledge made at the Vienna conference in 2014 that said we need to work together to fill the legal gap uh, with respect to nuclear weapons we need to prohibit these last weapons of mass destruction that have yet to be prohibited And that that through the Act of Prohibition, we would spur progress towards their elimination. Um, And the following year, we managed to get, um, sorry, in 2016, we managed to get a resolution adopted by the UN General Assembly that established the mandate for the treaty negotiations. None of the nuclear-armed nations uh, supported that resolution, uh, but this came as no surprise to us. Um, we made the argument that we needed to proceed regardless of what the nuclear-armed nations uh, thought. Um, We could not afford to give them a veto power over these negotiations, and that this was about establishing a new norm, and that that norm could be established by uh, the nuclear-free majority. Uh, And we spent four weeks earlier this year uh, working alongside governments to negotiate the text of the treaty, um, it's, it has its limitations because we, don't, we didn't have the nuclear armed nations in the, w- in the room. And so we couldn't uh, develop all of the detailed um, mechanisms that would be required to actually dismantle their uh, arsenals. But what uh, the treaty does. Is establish a very categorical prohibition on nuclear weapons. It prohibits use, it prohibits production, it prohibits possession, and it also prohibits any state party from assisting in any of those acts. And the treaty also establishes a uh, legal framework for achieving zero nuclear weapons. So a nuclear-armed nation can join the treaty at any time and then A subsequent protocol will be negotiated with that state um, to develop the the, um, uh, terms by which they will eliminate their stockpile. Um, There are important provisions in the treaty related to providing assistance to those who uh, are victims of nuclear testing around the world um, as well as for the remediation of contaminated environments um, and Nuclear test survivors, as well as um, the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, were a really powerful presence throughout the negotiations and in the lead up to the negotiations. Um, they said, you know, we know what these weapons do because we've experienced uh, what, you know, we've experienced that. Um, and they really you know, galvanized countries to take action. Uh, and I think will be really important also in continuing to put pressure on uh, countries to join the treaty. We we currently have... Well, we had 122 countries uh, vote in favour of adopting the treaty. Uh, We currently have 53 signatory states, and we have three states' parties. Uh, We need uh, 50 countries to ratify it in order for it to enter into legal force uh, globally. So there's there's a lot of work uh, to be done... And we um, here need to make sure that our government uh, joins this treaty. Um, This has been a battle against the Australian government for years. They have been strongly opposed to this. And I regret to say that even under the Labor government, um, it was also a battle. They were not enthusiastic about this um, as, as the kind of initiative was developing. And it's based on this belief that Australian security depends on US nuclear weapons. Um, Who in this room feels protected by President Trump and his finger on the nuclear trigger? I mean, it's farcical and it's frightening. Um, And for us not to be able to take a principled stand against nuclear weapons is appalling. Um, you know, Australia has joined the bans on chemical weapons and uh, biological weapons and landmines and cluster munitions. We don't claim that we're, we're protected by a chemical weapon umbrella or a bio-weapon umbrella. So why do we claim protection from a nuclear weapon umbrella, the worst weapons of all? It's, it's an absurdity. And we need to you know, be putting pressure on the current government and we need to be putting pressure on the Labor opposition uh, we do not yet have a firm commitment from the Labor Party to sign this treaty when they form government next. We need that from them. They said that they, uh, that they were... They criticised the government for not participating in the negotiations. Um, so that's a good step. Um, and many of the individual Labor parliamentarians have pledged their support for the treaty. They've said that they will work to get Australia to sign and ratify it. Uh, I think we've got more than 60 of them who have done that. Um, But still no official confirmation from Shorten or Penny Wong. Penny Wong has the foreign affairs portfolio uh, that a Labor government will sign this. So um, that's our challenge and we need to do uh, everything we can to make sure that uh, our government stands on the right side of history. Um, And we've been... You know, just one final point is that we've been told all along the way that what we're trying to do is impossible. We were told that we could never get this uh, treaty negotiated, that, w- that the General Assembly would never agree to it. Well, you know, we, we had 123 vote for the mandate. Uh, we were told that the negotiations would fall in a heap, that the text would never be concluded. It was concluded in you know, a little over four four weeks. Um, and now people are saying "Well, Australia will never change its attitude towards this because it's too deeply entrenched with the US. No, it can change. We don't have to um, support the the worst. The Australian people do not support these weapons surely Uh, and so our government shouldn't either and I have a lot of confidence that we will um, get Australia on board and that we will not only get Australia on board, but Australia will be one of the first countries under the so-called nuclear umbrella to sign this treaty. That's our challenge. Mm.
0: I've got a suggestion that we might deviate from the plan that I suggested earlier and go straight to questions and comments from the audience. Would, would you welcome that? I can see a few people who are sort of itching to uh, press a button or pull a trigger. Um, in fact, I, I can't go past you, John Hallam, to ask the first uh, thank question. You,
2: thank you. Uh, I've got a whole series of uh, or
0: Would you
1: like to, Yeah, me? yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to calculate risk, but I think that um, it can be said that We're in a situation today that's almost as dangerous as it's ever been in terms of the risk of a nuclear weapon um, being used. Um, There were a lot of discussions at the humanitarian conferences that I mentioned uh, about risk. And even if you were to argue that the chances of a nuclear conflict are unlikely uh, today, the risk is still very high because the consequences of such a conflict are so grave. Um, so you know, risk isn't just a calculation of, of likelihood. And I don't think anyone can be certain that the situation um, between Trump and Mr Kim um, won't result in uh, catastrophe. I think there's a very real possibility that it will. Um, and the deterrence theory that we hear um, used by the Australian government and others to uh, justify their policies, um, has really been brought into question uh, recently with the election of Trump. And I think a lot of people are less uh, confident about the validity of of deterrence theory in the age of Trump. Uh, And the consequences of uh, his election um, are that many people are now more aware of the threat of nuclear weapons than perhaps they were uh, previously. Uh, And our role, as I can, uh, has been to... We've always uh, felt that it's important not just to focus on kind of proliferation risks and the problem of North Korea or the problem of uh, Iran, but to talk about the entire uh, nuclear threat. Um, There are, as you said... China has been uh, testing missiles, the United States has been testing missiles, but uh, this goes often unnoticed in the media. And so we need to kind of correct some of the distortions uh, in media coverage um, and show our own government's uh, role in in, uh, the nuclear threat as well.
2: I was just going to say, I I think um, I really endorse what Tim's just said, um, you know the, the 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 focus on North Korea, um, you know, and it's uh, terrifying um, watching the sort of uh, watching those developments. Does mean that the international community and people in our community shift attention from a range of the other factors that are driving increased risk? You know, the sort of post Ukraine, post Syrian crisis, uh, sort of lack of coherence in US U.S. Um, Russian relationships predated Trump. Like that's not a that's not a new development. That's a three or four year old development. Um, and and the sort of intensification of Chinese, Indian, and Pakistani, um, uh, you know, there are fourteen thousand nuclear devices, two thousand of them launch capable. Ninety three percent of them are in American and Russian hands. There are actually credible, you, you know, I I I pose some. Um, you know, operational difficulties, so those should be sort of swept aside with the the treaty framework that we're talking about, absolutely we should press ahead with the argument to stigmatise and shift the sort of normative position of countries around the world about this issue. That's crucial. We must also take steps to reduce the size of the nuclear arsenal um, because that does reduce the risk and we must have as our objective... An outcome where there are no nuclear weapons, um, and we're irrevocably, you know, um, unable to, to sort of rebuild them. Um, I think these things shouldn't be posed as competing objectives. Um, we must do all
0: of these things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, John, no, let's give some other people opportunities. And up at the front, yes, please,
1: I think it's a very significant risk, okay. uh, and there are many documented cases where nuclear weapons have almost been used mm-hmm. by accident. Um, and you know, there, that you know, we obviously only know, know of those instances that have been documented. But I'm sure there are many uh, other instances as well. Um, there have been cases where a flock of geese were mistaken for incoming missiles, um, a, a nuclear. Uh, An aircraft with nuclear weapons on board uh, crashed uh, in the US. Um, An aircraft uh, dropped off the the back of an aircraft carrier into the ocean and the weapons were never recovered. So there are actually nuclear weapons um, that are unaccounted for. Um, There are some uh, in Greenland uh, that were rediscovered recently um, from Google Earth imagery. They went missing a couple of decades ago because of an aircraft uh, accident and you know, someone noticed some um, odd shapes beneath the ice. Um, you know, they might be nuclear weapons, they thought, and they were. Uh, I mean, this is this is crazy. These are you know, the, the worst weapons of mass destruction, and there are uh, all sorts of risks, as you say. Um, the risk of a cyber attack. Um, There was a good expose by John Oliver, the comedian, uh, based on work by Eric Schlosser, the journalist, uh, who wrote a book all about this um, last year, Command and Control. But uh, I encourage you to look at the uh, clip by John Oliver, uh, and he shows footage of some of the missile silos in the US, and they're still using floppy disks um, from... Know, the '80s, not 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 the floppy disks this size, big floppy disks, uh, the ones even before those. And uh, earlier this year, they um, the um, some of the s- submariners um, in the UK uh, welcomed the press aboard one of the Trident nuclear armed submarines, and they were using Windows XP, which apparently hasn't had any security updates for. Um, know, a decade or maybe not that long, but a number of years. And so yeah, there are serious vulnerabilities, um, um, but there's also, of course, the risk of deliberate use as well.
2: Uh, well, I, I, j- I mean, I, the, I'm the, um, submarines are a critical part of the, um, particularly for the Americans and the Russian <coughs> nuclear capability. And, you know, it's, what do what, what the what, what are the defence people say there? Because a key asymmetric capability, because you can't see them. <laughs> um, I thank you
0: very much, Tim.
2: I, I, I reckon that the other thing that's going on here is, um, I mean, you're, you're right about the sort of overwhelming wall of sort of information that people, you know. That, that I, I reckon one of the key issues here is you. You look at those. Um, those Lowy Foundation surveys that come out every year, what they show is a declining level of confidence in democratic and civil institutions, particularly from young people. Um, So one of the things I think that is critical here is not just to frighten young people, they're frightened enough already, um, be really clear about the the risks that are apparent, (coughs) but also there has to be a sense that by getting engaged in activity, you can have an impact upon the outcome. Um, and at the moment, I think, you know, it's, a, it, it's actually a really boneheaded thing to do to wish for the certainties of the Cold War period to come back because it was pretty bad, right? It was pretty terrible. But, but at least in that Cold War period, people felt like they had a sense of control. There were a limited number of international actors and people felt like they were engaged in a struggle that was about something, now, it had its limits. I, I accept that. But right now, the challenge in the environment movement, particularly around climate change, is similar. But you want people to feel like by engaging in activity, there is a pathway to something changing. Um, and I think we that that we, we should... And you know, one of the things I'd like to do is have a really careful think about how it is that we actually build that capability um, and build that capacity for... Um, you know, a commitment to change, because um, it doesn't. St- it's about it's about this field of endeavour, but it also goes to whether or not people are confident that by engaging in civil and political activity, they can actually have an impact in their community. Mm.
3: Tim, well, can, um, can, I, can I just add that, sorry, that that there are yeah, mechanisms in existence? To, I mean, I think um, we're not reinventing a wheel here. I, I think that you know, through I can, uh, which a- and through organisations like Red Cross, we have youth advisory committees in every state and territory and every regional center and we encourage those youth advisory committees to champion whatever causes resonate most with them and nuclear weapons is invariably the one they are most interested in Um, and they very much couple it with climate change and it was interesting we had the former chief of defense force last year say well there are two existential threats that the planet faces one is climate change Mm. and the other one is nuclear weapons and we've mobilized this uh, f- global force around climate change but where, you know, can we couple them? You know, so I think it's quite an interesting thought. Um, but, you know, I'd say it's already there. It's a matter of uh, of promoting it and spreading it more widely. I mean, can um, ha- has what would you say snowballed in, in um, its reach to people glo- globally and I think it's fair to say that there are there's mechanisms there. It just, it's a matter of bringing them to the attention and, and meeting people up and
2: I can't imagine anything yeah. more important over the next 12 months than focusing on the Nobel Peace Prize and the treaty, you know, the, the, the ICAN campaign. Not like really, what, what, what else should we do over the next 12 months? Well, it's probably that.
0: I think that's the, that's the core of it. woman at the back. Yes, you.
1: In terms of uh, the outlook, um, we have set ourselves the target of getting the treaty entered into force next year, uh, or or hitting the 50-state mark for ratifications. Uh, It's ambitious. Um, If we don't reach that, I expect that we'll reach it the following year, um, based on the experience with other treaties that have required 50 ratifications. Um, This is slightly more challenging uh, in the sense that we do have uh, a fairly decent chunk of countries that don't support it, um, currently being the NATO states and others um, under the umbrella or with nuclear weapons. Um, But I hope that we see some of those states change over the next year. Um, We're going to be obviously putting pressure on Australia, but also putting lot of pressure on uh, some of the non-nuclear weapon states in NATO um, that have kind of left-leaning governments um, and you know, where they have conservative governments will be working to put pressure on the oppositions to lock them into supporting it as soon as they form government in the same way that we're doing here. Um, and, you know, we've, there's a chance that the, um new Prime Minister of Iceland will be from the left-green movement. We're meeting with her um, just after the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, uh, hoping that Iceland might be the first to... uh, Yeah, it's a very small country, but it's a NATO member, and that would be um, an important um, step to take uh, to break up the pack not to get them out of NATO, that's not our agenda, they can do that if they want, uh, but you know, to get them to, to not toe the NATO line on this issue. Um, and you know, who knows what's around the corner politically. Um, we've got Jeremy Corbyn coming to our Nobel Peace Prize ceremony um, and you know, he's very supportive of this treaty and could well you know, the UK could well be the first nuclear-armed nation to join it. Um, And if they do join, um, you're asking about who they would negotiate with. The treaty refers to a competent international authority. So um, theoretically, it could be the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, or it could be um, somebody that that doesn't currently exist. Um, You asked about the 2020 NPT Review Conference. Um, We are trying not to kind of focus too much on um, the non-proliferation treaty review cycle. Um, We find that things can really get um, overly focused on that and it's so much within the grip of the permanent five members of the Security Council, the nuclear weapon states. And, um, you know, they've made commitments in the past that they haven't honoured. Of course, we need to keep urging them to honour their commitments and their obligations under the NPT itself, Article 6, to pursue disarmament. Um, But we can't be beholden by um, the NPT process. The ban treaty has a life of its own, will have a life of its own.
3: Um, I would just add that uh, one of the criticisms of the treaty that some countries have put forward Uh, is that it undermines the NPT and therefore they won't be having a bar of it because they're already committed to the NPT process. So I think one of the arguments that um, humanitarian agencies are making is that these are not mutually exclusive and we've heard that, you know, or if you've got mention of nuclear weapons in several agreements, that's going to be very complicated and that creates a messy system and let's just focus on this one system that we've all signed up to in 1968. And I mean, that... It, that's not true I mean France and China didn't sign till you know the 1990s many years later it wasn't like everybody was on board and this was a fabulous the, the only game in town um, and I think um, that they're meant to work together and if I think of a sort of an analogy in um, in law of torture for example torture appears in the um, the Declaration of Human Rights it's in the ICCPR it's in the Convention Against Torture it's in um, uh, protection of people with disabilities. It's, you know, there's, there's torture appears in at least six pieces of international law that I can think of. There's no reason why nuclear weapons can't be dealt with in many strands of law. Um, and so I think that, I- from my perspective, there's no. You asked about the interrelationship between the NPT. I mean, we would argue that it doesn't undermine uh, the ban treaty. Doesn't undermine the NPT at all, um, and that we must preserve the NPT. It's still very important. Um, but obviously this Article 6, the obligation to negotiate towards complete elimination of nuclear weapons, has completely failed. So this is an alternative to that um, failed pillar of that of that treaty.
0: A medical analogy comes to mind where you stop a disease spreading and then you uh, try to eradicate it at the core. Uh, a question from Stuart. Can each of you say something that I...
3: Unfortunately, I'm... As a Red Cross representative, I can't say any of those things, other than letting you know that we are engaging regularly with the government on these matters, and they're very. Um, mind that they, they are aware of what our positions are, but I, I can't say more than that.
0: What I'm trying to get at is do you change the, the cognition oh. okay, well, because we are, what,
3: mm-hmm. I, I think the shift that we are trying to. Um, Uh, create is uh, I think Tim alluded to before it's just from seeing this as a military defence security framed discussion to one that is about humanitarian consequences. I've noticed in the audience there are other experts here who may like to chime in as well Robert Tickner Um, um, uh, so I think if we can do as was successful with the landmines convention, with the cluster munitions (coughs) convention um, it was about reframing the debate. I mean, those were those were weapons that were still in the arsenals of all of those militaries at the time. They were still in the military manuals. This is a different kind of weapon we're talking about here. It's one that hasn't been used for 70 years. So let's let's not talk about it in defence terms and strategy strategic, you know, th- that that edifice, uh, but in humanitarian terms. And then you make it clear very quickly that the incalculable suffering is just unacceptable. You can't have that kind of insurance policy to rest your defence system on. Absolutely. Yeah
0: the question that you've been trying to ask a question for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want to tack a question on John or what what you said is very moving. Well, is mm-hmm. if you go
2: mm. So um I thought I thought Stuart's question approached some of those issues as well. Like it's uh, how do you how do you um, you know build a political consensus within the Labor movement for change? Um, and um, you know, I mean, the the, the likelihood that uh, somebody said before, uh, how would you talk to Julia Bishop about it? I mean, I mean, really, um, there's not much point, really, is there? Um, the only prospect of there being change in this area is with a with a um, um, really with the labor government, and I think there are a number of tracks you have to go on. It's a bit like the international diplomacy. Like the moral track is really important. Making the moral argument, the simple, straightforward, powerful moral argument, is absolutely critical. I think as well, and it might just be that I haven't um, haven't been exposed to these uh, issues. Um, as much as I should have been over the course of the last couple of years. The other challenge is to build a consensus about what the pathway looks like for those people who are, you know, likely to be sceptical about whether or not this is a good idea. Um, and um, I think that involves, um, you know, this is not a new thing for the Labor movement having these contests internally. I've seen a few of them. I'm very young, but I've seen a few of them. Um, we, you know so you've got to you've got to win them sort of moral political argument, but also I think there is you know the more that I've thought about it, the more I've looked about it at it. that argument to say yes, our relationship um, with the countries in the region and our relationship um, with the Americans um, it, it, which has constrained our capacity to do, you know to, make these changes and meant that many people have been in political leadership positions have been reluctant to advocate hard for these changes is precisely the reason now why we have a greater responsibility to make the case Mm. Um, and finally means that we're more likely to exert more leverage and the positive effects of Australia uh, uh, signing the treaty and ratifying the treaty are likely to be more powerful than, than um, perhaps they might have been some time ago. I mean, the, the, you know, I don't don't want to talk about uh, President Trump very much, um, but the advent of the new American um, administration has shaken a lot of people's confidence across the civilised world in, you know, um, American exceptionalism and and their capacity to act rationally. Um, and that's, I think, changing a lot of the thinking in the, you know, in the hard nuts in the foreign policy community. The final thing I'd just say is, you know, I actually think change is actually possible as well. Like, when you look at you know, the numbers that I was talking about before, about the number of weapons, there's some guy um, goes by the... It's the most amazing name I've ever read, sort of Colonel B. Chance Saltzman, the head of the US Air Force um, Strategic uh, Planning and Policy Unit, issued a report that said... And the Americans could actually downsize to 311 uh, warheads without any diminution of their strategic position. Uh, now, uh, I'd like them to, to go to zero. But just imagine if the Americans and the Russians and a range of these countries could get to that level. It does make the world a safer place. It does mean that it's a staging post on the way to um, more profound change. Um, so we need to... It's. Even with the policy hardheads, I think it's about saying change is possible, it's achievable, and you've got a moral responsibility uh, to stand up and make it happen. So it's a bit longer than mm-hmm. pro- probably it needed, but it's uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be
0: straightforward. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to catch Robert Tickner's eye. Do you want to comment on hmm. this, Bob? Uh, Robert Tikkanen w- w- was a member of a Labour government uh, and uh, has yeah, a uh, long, long history. Yeah, uh, <laughs> You've <laughs> like a long history in humanitarian issues. Uh, uh, what do you think, Bob? Possible. I'm going to ask the speakers to sum up and perhaps say particularly the question of what can be done, what we can do. would uh, like to go first? What about you, Look, look
2: I, I agree absolutely with uh, everything that Robert just said, um, which... Um, I haven't seen Robert for ages, I was sort of looking up there and I think, I'm sure that's Robert, I'm sure it is. And and I deliberately inserted into my thing, I said, Bob Tickner really quickly and he didn't look up and I thought, maybe it's not fucking Robert. I know. And, and so so eventually I figured out it was. I mean, I've made a practice of, even though I haven't, we, we probably haven't had a yarn for a, a decade almost, but I'd always do what Robert said. I reckon it's a very important uh, moral and political lesson. Um, but, but Robert's r- right, that the, the conference is going to be very important. Um, I, mean those, we might ex- I mean, it may be that we have an election, um, you know, before um, the Labor Party conference. Um, uh, but still, the conference will be a very important forum for this debate. Um, it's very important that, the, you know, I've watched the work that ICANN's <coughs> been doing in the Federal Parliament. Um, people have been you know really lining up the cut co- the, the challenge is quite right as Robert said to to turn that into a sort of coherent platform position um, and to and to do the work um, uh, with the uh, with the leader's office like we must get to the position that Robert's described um, and i'm very happy to play um, my part and I'm very confident that there's a strong group. It's very encouraging to see that Mark Dreyfus has signed um, that today. Mark's a very thoughtful fellow um, and that, that will have a big impact in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm counting numbers already. In Hamilton, uh-huh. It will
0: matter. I might have my own personal reflection that what the Labor Party does depends not just on its internal uh, debates and uh, discussions, but also on broader social movements that uh, shape what it feels inclined to respond to. So I think a Mm bottom-up view of of social movement uh, uh, politics is not not an either-or. If you haven't got a strong social movement politics, you typically don't get strong Labour Party positions. So that's... I don't know if you'd agree with that, Tim, but... Maybe we'll have another session on that about mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what determines what the Labor Party... You may be like surprised that I've got strong views. <laughs> 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 uh, Tara, would you like to comment and say yeah, what's I to think,
3: be done? Um, it's been a great talk. Thank you, everybody, for contributing your interesting thoughts and comments. And um, I also uh, agree with everything... Robert Tickner has said and as my former boss, the CEO of the Australian Red Cross until very recently, um, of course, uh, he made an enormous contribution uh, to the work of Red Cross internationally and and particularly in Australia to um, getting as far as we have. Um, as far as what we can do I think that changing norms which is what we're doing here stigmatising these weapons to make them so unpalatable but that countries wouldn't dare to use them because they are so offensive and so abhorrent uh, I think changing norms is, is a difficult process it necessarily involves a lot of people a lot of countries being made to feel very uncomfortable and that's fine, that's good um, we have to create those conditions i think where they do feel uncomfortable because that's what stigmatizing these weapons is about and that can happen in a lot of levels and i think that we can raise our voices in a number of ways uh... we haven't mentioned this evening the um, don't bank on the bomb campaign uh... which is an international movement to ensure that um, uh... manufacturers don't get financing for um for their for weapons manufacturing now, what's happened with the landmines movement is if you make if you outlaw something and then somebody still wants to be making it, it's very hard to find the funds to do that. Likewise with nuclear weapons, I think if you look at the Don't Bank on the Bomb website, there's one Australian bank uh, that has agreed to abide by these principles, mm. um, and I think that so there's the financial side of it, stigmatizing it, so it makes it very difficult to manufacture and create them. I also think that. There is so much in the news about the brinkmanship between the nuclear countries at the moment. Uh, But never in those news reports do we have a mention from the journalist that says, and by the way, 123 countries internationally Mm -hmm. supported this ban because they think these weapons are so totally unacceptable that they want to ban and eliminate their use. That's not being uh, injected into contemporary media, and that worries me. That we, when we talk about it, it's in a scary way. We're frightening people. We're putting them on edge. But actually, I see this as a very optimistic time, because 123 countries have supported this, and now you know yeah. 50 have signed, and. Um, And we need them to to follow up now and to uh, actually sign and ratify the treaties implemented in their own countries. So I think that we can inject voices, we can ensure that our financial institutions aren't aren't, um, linked to any manufacturers in any way. Uh, We can write letters to papers to ensure that the the voice of the... I think it's 82% of Australians who, when polled, said they'd want to see an end to nuclear weapons. So I think it's a matter of elevating the profile of, of that yeah, I might just
1: respond to a few of the comments and questions um, that have been made. Uh, there was a comment about the Marshall Islands and um, obviously the Marshall Islands has suffered greatly as a result of US nuclear testing. Um, there are other countries in the Pacific that have been affected by British and French nuclear testing. Um, And all of these countries played such an instrumental role in the treaty negotiations. And not just at the official level, but we also had uh, individuals from civil society. Um, We had a couple of Red Cross officials from those countries as well involved in the process. Um, And it was just incredible to see the way that the Pacific nations worked together to uh, really make sure that it was a strong and effective treaty that was adopted. Uh, and on day one, the 20th of September, when the treaty opened for signature, um, among the first to sign were the presidents and prime ministers of the Pacific. Just such an incredible show of support for this new treaty um, and you know the big brother of the region, nowhere to be seen. Um,
3: so empowering for them too, I think. You know, as, as <coughs> the countries that have been victimised, and you know, there's a lot of neo-colonial analysis of who's had the power here and who's 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 taking it back. Yeah, it's yeah, it's taking very control very of
1: the agenda and refusing to be victims of these weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, with um, those who have suffered as a result of the testing here at Maralinga, Emu Field, and uh, Montebello Islands, we had. A number of Aboriginal uh, test survivors involved in the process. Um, Sue Coleman um, was has been very active um, for a number of years. Uh, she's going to be travelling with us to Oslo next week um, for the Peace Prize ceremony. Uh, a remarkable woman who, um, when she te- when she went to Vienna in 2014 uh, to address a conference there, uh, it was the first time leaving Australia. And she spoke to a thousand diplomats representing one hundred and fifty-eight countries in a palace. Uh, So this was like a about the most intimidating setting that you could imagine. And she was nervous, but did the most remarkable job. Gave the most compelling speech, um, talking about the impact that this treaty, uh, that these weapons rather, have had um, on Aboriginal communities um, in her area. Karina Lester, whose father, Yami Lester, um, was blinded by nuclear tests. Uh, he passed away earlier this year. Um, but after you know, the adoption of the treaty, and he was really happy that his daughter, uh, Karina, was able to be part of that process, and she gave a statement on behalf of 35 indigenous groups around the world. Uh, about the disproportionate harm that nuclear weapons have had on indigenous communities. And that fact is recognised in the preamble to the treaty, thanks to her advocacy. So a really remarkable contribution to the development of international law. Um, in response to the comment about, um, that was made about kind of the sceptics... I've always felt that the biggest challenge is not to convince people that nuclear weapons should be abolished, but to convince them that they can be <coughs> abolished. And you know, we've been in many meetings where we're talking to kind of you know, U.S. ambassadors and uh, all the, you know, these hard-headed you know, people who just you know, love their nuclear weapons. And it's we're not we're not really challenged by that in the same way as. Uh, it's really, con- it's really difficult to overcome um, the scepticism. Those who just say, oh, you know, pat us on the back and say, good, good that you're trying to fight yeah. this, but you know, we're never going anywhere. You know, I'm on your side, but it's never, you're never going to yep. get anywhere. Yep. Um, I, get I think that's the, the biggest um, challenge for us to overcome. And just a final point about the, um, the pledge, because we, we started this parliamentary pledge not really knowing how Having any sense of how many uh, politicians would sign it, um, it could really have fallen flat, um, and that would have been a, a bad look. Um, so we were conscious of that. But um, and a lot of people kind of said, you, you know, you're just going to get those on the left, and you're not going to get any of the uh, the serious people with their um, shadow minister positions. But you know they have um, signed on, and. Um, yeah, there was an article written in the um, ASPE, the Australian Strategic um Policy, Institute. Policy Institute just a couple of weeks ago, kind of saying, oh, but, you know, they're not yet at half of the Labor caucus and they don't have blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a couple of those people signed subsequently. So, um, and, you know, each week we get one or two new people and there are um, school students who have been involved in this campaign Um, folding paper cranes and delivering those to their local politician and saying, you know, in exchange we want you to add your name to the pledge. Um, So that's an example of youth uh, engagement in this work and we're chipping away at the nuclear edifice and the cracks are widening and deepening and uh, we're going to get there.
0: I think this has been a, a marvellous exploration of why this uh, all-important topic matters so much and, and what we can try to do to, to push the agenda further. Uh, I'd like you to join me in thanking uh, Meredith Hall and uh, 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 Sydney Ideas for hosting <laughs> the event. Uh, 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 of course, thanks to the sponsoring organisations who put it on: the Council for Peace with Justice, the Everett Foundation, and of course, most important, I can, uh, the the winners of this year's Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> more power to your elbows, <laughs> they used to say. Uh, and thanks to you all, of course, for coming, for your excellent questions, and for your ongoing commitment. To, to this issue. Thank you very much and good night. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas